This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today's our last episode of 2021, so we're taking this opportunity to reflect on the last year of developments in type 2 diabetes research and to look forward to the year ahead. We're joined today by Dr. Kevin Fernando, who's a GP partner with a special interest in diabetes. He's based at the North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh in Scotland, and he's also Scottish lead for the UK Primary Care Diabetes Society. His disclosures are available in the episode notes, where you can also find links to the references discussed today. So we've asked you to share what were the three most impactful or exciting pieces of clinical data that you think have emerged this year in type 2 diabetes management and what they might mean for clinical practice. Let's start with your first highlight from this year. So one of my highlights from 2021 was the Emperor Preserved trial, uh, looking at empagliflozin, but in the context of heart failure with preserved dejection fraction. Now, we've had a couple of seminal studies looking at heart failure with reduced dejection fraction. We had the DAPA-HF study with dapagliflozin and then EMPRA-reduced with empagliflozin as well. And this has driven license changes in in both of these drugs to be used in heart failure with reduced dejection fraction, importantly, both people with and without type 2 diabetes. But what we've lacked over the years really is is an evidence-based therapeutic option for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. This is another common type of heart failure really driven by the presence of comorbidities such as type 2 diabetes. We've had some soft data for drugs such just spironolactone and uh, circubitral valsartan, but really no hard clinical evidence up until earlier this year uh, when we had a publication of the Emperor Preserve study, which did demonstrate after 26 months follow-up a significant 21% reduction in a composite of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure with empagliflozin uh, for people living with a HEFPEF heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So I know it's a somewhat overused term these days, but this is a, a game changer really uh, for our patients living with HEFPEF because of, as I said, the lack of data. So our cardiology colleagues are very excited about this uh, new therapeutic option. And actually in America, the FDA have given empagliflozin breakthrough status. So breakthrough therapy status. So hopefully it's going to drive a very quick uh, update in its license indication so we can use it for our patients living uh, with HEFPEF. So that certainly has been very exciting and it'll be great to have that on hopefully on UK shores at some point during 2022. Thank you. And what's your second highlight from this year? So another another highlight for me from 2021 was the STEP trial program, which uh, looked at the use of semaglutide, one of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, which we're all very familiar with as a, as a, as a class. But actually what they used semaglutide in the STEP trial program was, was purely for the management of people living uh, with obesity or who are overweight with a comorbidity but not type 2 diabetes. So it was being investigated as a weight loss drug. And previously, you know, we've we've never used semaglutide in this context. So the STEP trial program consisted of a number of different trials, 
But uh, notably, uh, step one was published earlier on this year, published its results in the New England Journal of Medicine. Lead author was John Wilding, actually, of course, one of our, our UK uh, diabetologists. And it really uh, pr produced some very significant results. It compared, as I said, semaglutide versus placebo in a population of people who are either overweight or obese with at least one weight-related comorbidity, but once again, not type 2 diabetes, okay? That said, about 40% of the trial population had evidence of pre-diabetes. And the, the, the top-line results uh, that, that uh, John Wilding uh, uh, illustrated was a near 15% mean reduction in body weight from baseline over 68 weeks follow-up with a semaglutide dose of 2.4 milligrams, so a much higher dose than we've been using in everyday clinical practice at the moment. And this, of course, was in conjunction with lifestyle advice and regular counselling as well. Um, so, you know, this sort of uh, weight loss is very compelling and really hasn't been demonstrated with any previous weight loss therapy. And, and that actually is similar to, to weight loss we see after bariatric surgery as well. So again, to use that phrase again, this is a, is a game changer. Of course, importantly, if we are going to implement this in day-to-day -day clinical practice, we need to wait for an updated uh, license uh, for semaglutide at this 2.4 milligram dose specifically for the use of, of uh, uh, obesity, but we also need to be able to support that individual with a lifestyle advice, uh, with nutritional counselling, lifestyle counselling as well to, to, to support what weight loss and importantly to support weight maintenance as well. And I think that, to be honest, is going to be the biggest challenge implementing uh, the results of step one into my everyday clinical practice. Whilst the data for high dose of advertising is very compelling, um, any sort of uh, weight loss intervention needs to be a package and needs to be supported with uh, nutritional and psychological counselling too. But nevertheless, very exciting. And just uh, very quickly on, on, on the subject of side effects, adverse effects, it was a concern using sebaglutide at a higher dose. How well tolerated would it be? But actually, uh, the adverse effects were, as expected for the GLP-1 class as a whole, was mild to moderate uh, nausea and diarrhea. So uh, that was reassuring that that risk-benefit ratio does appear to be favourable, even at that higher dose of semaglutide. And what's your third highlight from this year and what might it mean for clinical practice? So my third highlight from 2021 was actually presented at the virtual EASD conference, European Association for the Study of Diabetes, and it was the Retune study um, uh, presented by Roy Taylor and, uh, and a colleague. So I'm sure we're all very familiar with the direct study, the seminal direct study that demonstrated we can reverse type 2 diabetes and put it into remission. Uh, if, uh, if individuals uh, had around 15 kilograms weight loss, that resulted in an 86% um, uh, diabetes remission rate. And importantly, everyone in the direct trial recruited had BMIs between 27 and 45. But what the Retune study did was looked at individuals with a BMI below 27 um, and uh, a diagnosis of diabetes and, and looked at whether it was possible to reverse type 2 diabetes below a BMI of 27. And in, in a nutshell, the answer was yes. So this was a really uh, exciting study because it really emphasized the concept of an individual personal fat threshold. 
So people appear to develop type 2 diabetes when they've stored more fat in their own body um, than they can manage. So this study um, demonstrated, as I said, significant uh, reductions in glycemic levels, um, in, in lipid levels, in liver fat, pancreatic fat, and also remission in type 2 diabetes, even in people uh, with a BMI below 27. So I think this concept is, is very useful and as a Roy Taylor itself, very helpful to explain to our patients uh, who are striving to reverse their type 2 diabetes and put it into remission. So I think the results of this study is something we can quickly implement into our everyday clinical practice. It's something I'm asked about on an almost weekly basis. Can I reverse my type 2 diabetes? So now we have evidence for people not just with a BMI above 27, but also below 27 too. Now, looking further ahead, what three things are you looking forward to seeing next year? Are there any results that are particularly anticipated and what impact might they have on clinical practice? During 2022, we're expecting a lot of uh, exciting new research, new guidelines and uh, new, new therapies and also updated license for existing therapies too. And one of those new therapies that I'm looking forward to, to trying out is tazepatide, what we call a twin catrin or a dual GLP-1 GIP. Now, a GIP stands for glucose-dependent insulotropic polypeptide. So it's another incretin. It's another hormone that stimulates insulin release from the pancreas in response to, to food and also modulates glucagon release too. So this was looked at in the SURPASS-2 trial earlier on this year. Uh, SURPASS-2 actually compared uh, three doses of this tazepatide molecule against one milligram of semaglutide, one of the commonly used GLP-1s, and found significant reductions in both glycemia, over 2%, and in weight as well, over 10 kilograms. So uh, these were very compelling results. And again, in terms of adverse effects, um, there, there were GI side effects, as we would expect with incretins, uh, but uh, very few dropouts from the study. So this is a very exciting uh, new therapy that could help both significantly reduce glycemia and weight. And, and it looks like it's coming to the UK market by hopefully the middle of 2022. And very much, I think this is something we can use in primary care, and perhaps as a first injectable after you know, multiple oral medications in combination. So there's a number of these surpassed trials looking at the use of, uh, of tazepatide. So we'll hear more about that over the next six months too. But certainly that, that, that I look forward to trying out during 2022. And what's the second thing that you're looking forward to seeing next year? So next year, well, I think we're going to be talking a lot more about lipids as well. We've talked a lot, of, of course, about diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, renal uh, outcomes as well. But lipids have always been relatively neglected, partly because we've had a limited treatment armamentarium to bring down uh, to lipids, mainly statins, to be honest. But we've got a number of new lipid-lowering therapies available to us now and on the horizon. And actually, recently updated European Society of Cardiology guidelines uh, are asking us to strive to tighter and tighter LDL cholesterol targets for our highest-risk patients. 
So for example, our patients living with type 2 diabetes and coexisting cardiovascular disease, we should be aiming for an LDL cholesterol target of less than 1.4 or even down to one in certain scenarios. So to do this, we're going to have to use lipid-lowering therapies in combination. So certainly, uh, I look forward to to hearing more about some of these newer lipid-lowering therapies and some of the data uh, looking at uh, lower LDL cholesterol uh, and uh, lower cardiovascular outcomes. Because we're we're quite, uh, quite used to, aren't we, using combination therapy for diabetes, for hypertension. But I think this is increasingly going to be the norm for lipid lowering therapies as well, given these lower and tighter um, LDL cholesterol targets we'll be striving for. And what's the third thing that you're looking forward to seeing next year? And another highlight next year is the EMPA kidney trial. So we had uh, the, the seminal credence trial a couple of years ago demonstrating that canagliflozin significantly reduced major adverse cardiovascular and renal outcomes. Uh, in in diabetic kidney disease. And then just last year, we have the DAPA-CKD trial, which illustrated that dapagliflozin also significantly reduced major adverse cardiovascular and renal outcomes, uh, but in people living with and without type 2 diabetes and CKD. So that really was was a game changer. changer. And next year, we have uh, EMPA kidney due to report as well, towards the end of next year, 2022, which looks at empagliflozin um, in people with CKD, again, with and without type 2 diabetes. So uh, I fully expect the results of EMPA kidney to reflect that of DAPA-CKD and Credence. So it'd be great, really, to, to, to hammer home the, in, the importance and, 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 and the, the prominence of SGLT2 inhibitors as a new pillar of treatment to prevent the progression of the CKD. It's got slightly different inclusion criteria from DAPA-CKD, uh, so I think it'll give us some slightly different information as well. But nevertheless, uh, certainly our renal colleagues as well, very excited about this study uh, and certainly will cement, as I said, the role of SGLT2 inhibitors going forward. Certainly in my the 21 years since I graduated from Edinburgh University, SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, in my opinion, are the biggest therapeutic advance. And I think they'll be standard of care in many long-term conditions over the next few years onwards. And as a final thought, we've seen a lot of data come out over the last few years that really has changed clinical practice and guidelines, and even how type 2 diabetes management is approached to an extent. So what do you think the next few years will look like? And is this a rate of progress that's likely to continue? So we we continue to work under colossal pressure in primary and secondary care as we emerge from the COVID pandemic. But despite this, that pipeline of cardiovascular, renal, metabolic research and guidance hasn't faltered, has it? It's accelerated in many ways, which makes it very challenging for us. But it is a very exciting time because we have a number of new therapies and interventions, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological, that really can help improve quality and quantity of life. So I know I appreciate it can be quite overwhelming, uh, but our our challenge, I think, is certainly in primary care, GPs, nurses, pharmacists, 
is to implement this practice changing data. And I think in many ways, it can help us emerge from the pandemic because drugs such as SGLT2s, GLP1s appear to have a preventative role now, don't they, in preventing uh, some of the major uh, cardiovascular and renal complications of type 2 diabetes um, and, and indeed uh, uh, impact in other comorbidities too. So I, I think, I know it's uh, overwhelming, but I really do think uh, some of these new uh, therapeutic advances, some of this new research can help us emerge from, from the pandemic and hopefully help sustain our wonderful NHS in the UK as well, which is uh, under colossal pressure, again, by reducing some of these downstream complications such as uh, dialysis, which of course is a huge financial burden on the NHS. This brings us to the end of the episode and the end of the series for the year. If you found the series useful or have feedback or thoughts on what you'd like to be covered in future episodes, please leave us a review or message us on our social media channels, which you can find links to in the episode notes. We do hope you've enjoyed listening in what's been another challenging year for healthcare, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes on the latest developments in diabetes care in 2022.